Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ricky Lane of the Monash Health Gender Clinic in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Lane is a research fellow at the Department of General Practice and his PhD research dove into the political implications of the brain sex theory of transsexuality and transgender. In this episode, we speak about gender diversity, inclusion in the clinic, identity, language, and the changes and implications of the skin for common gender-affirming treatments. I started by asking Dr. Lane what he thought were the biggest misconceptions about gender. Well, there's a lot of misconceptions about gender, I think. I mean, one of them is what's the difference between sex and gender, because the terms are often used interchangeably. I think the best way to understand that is the prominent sociologist of gender called Raymond Connell, who said that gender is how reproductive difference gets taken into the social domain. So sex is really about biology, about chromosomes, hormones, genitals, secondary sexual characteristics like body hair, facial hair, muscle strength, all those sort of things, breast development. And gender is much more about the social meanings. So what we as people look at reproductive difference and then the meanings we give to that. So because women bear children in most societies, it's assumed that women will raise children. Um, that's a social decision. And that there's certain gender stereotypes of what clothes people wear and these are often seen as essentially tied to people's biological sex whereas I would argue that gender being very, is, is very social. In the field of trans people we're talking really about gender identity so that's somebody's internal sense of whether they're male or female or, or something else uh, and I think people often get a great deal of confusion between reproductive difference which is obviously a biological reality and gender and gender identity which is social and psychological. Yeah, interesting. And many more misconceptions that we're likely to cover throughout this interview as well. But tell us about your career and how you got to be doing the work that you are doing today. Hey, well, I've been, I guess I did a PhD after doing an undergraduate degree, which my undergraduate majored in gender, sexual and diversity studies and in genetics, so it was art science. And then I did a PhD that was about the um, politics of knowledge of the brain sex theory of trans. So that's the idea that there's some hormonal or genetic uh, cause for why uh, some people have a gender identity that's different to their sex assigned at birth. And I got into that because I, I myself have cross-dressed for many years. And even when I don't, I've often birth assigned male, but I've often had people attribute female gender to me. They've looked at me with long hair and my facial structure and they've thought I was female. So I had an interest in the whole area uh, from that basis. But also, so then I have, I work as a researcher at the Department of General Practice at Monash University doing primary healthcare research. And I work at the Monash Health Gender Clinic as a project research worker there. So one of my roles there is to basically manage our consumer advisory panel, which includes both current and former clinics, uh, cl clients of the clinic. 
uh, and also members of transgender community organisations. And I also help coordinate uh, student research projects and other research projects in the, in the clinic. Well, so quite a busy career you lead and, and many different facets to the area as well. Before we get into the topic today, I'd like to lay out some foundations as many of our listeners may not have an in-depth knowledge about gender identities. So are you able to just explain briefly the difference between transgender, gender diverse, non-binary and how they differ from each other? There's a lot of other words too that people use. People often used to use the term transsexual. That's not used so much these days. And that tended to be found in, in yes, a very binary concept of gender. So that was, you know, people who were, you know, female reproductive anatomy would almost always grow up to have a female gender identity and people with some male would grow up to have a male gender identity. And that there were some people who weren't comfortable with that and would swap. And so they'd completely transition from one to the other. So that's, that's the idea of a binary gender. These days it's seen much more as a spectrum and, and much more as, di- as diverse so that people may not necessarily identify as either male or female. They may identify as having no gender or, that, or as somewhere in between or having aspects of their personality that are female and aspects that are male or feminine or masculine. So transgender is often has a lot of different meanings. One is that it's been used as an umbrella term for people who are in some way different to the typical person whose gender identity aligns with their birth assign- sex assigned at birth. It's also used sometimes in that more binary sense that people who do transition from one gender position to another. Sometimes we use trans or trans star as an umbrella term. Some people use trans and gender diverse. Uh, gender diverse meaning people who may not have a binary conception but are, don't feel comfortable with a, you know, a sort of typical gender identity. Non-binary is a term that's become very common over the last 10 years or so for people who sort of don't accept a gender binary position so that they're somewhere in between or other than male or female gender identity. And within that, there's a lot of different ways people self-identify and self-describe. So some people will regard them, call themselves transmasculine. And there's a lot of different sorts of changes people may or may not seek to their bodies that go with those different gender identity positions. I just want to highlight there that at the end you said, you know, some people have a preference to a word pronoun name. And I'd like to just ask for those that may not have non-binary, gender diverse, transgender people in their lives, what is the, I guess, the polite way to ask someone, if appropriate that is, on how they prefer to be pronounced or the pronouns to use? Well, I mean, the, the most straightforward way is uh, what pronouns do you like me to, would you like me to use? That's fairly straightforward. It's a bit like when you ask somebody what name would you like me to use? Somebody may have their name that's on their birth certificate or on their Medicare record, but very many people, that's not the name they use. So, yeah, the pretty key points this with, with trans people is to use the name they ask you to use and to use the pronouns they ask you to use. So for many trans people, uh, they will want to be him or she, her. Increasingly, there are a lot of uh, non-binary or gender diverse or gender queer people will prefer they, them pronouns. And some people don't like the use of they and them in the singular and they say that that's, you know, poor English. But actually, if you look back historically in Shakespeare, there are instances of using they and them in the singular. And in fact, people use they and them in the singular all the time when they're referring to a person whose gender they don't know. So if you're citing an author, for example, you say, oh, 
well, Giddens says this, they said that, because you don't know whether they're male or female. So it's actually a common, quite a common practice. And it's quite similar to what happened to you. You, of course, was originally, originally only plural and then became singular, and you don't see too many people using thou anymore as the singular. So they and them are pronouns that some people prefer. Mm, yeah, interesting. So um, in a social setting, of course, you can ask directly. And and also in a setting where there may be client forms, consent forms and such, I think it's also important to highlight here that the typical circle male or female is should be obsolete now. So if you're listening and you may be in an allied health field or you may be in a clinic setting or you may have some kind of consent form, then it may be worth just having a think about how you can be more inclusive on that form, which is really simple, but I'm sure it could make quite a difference to how that person is feeling included in your workplace. Yeah, and look, in some circumstances, it's important to know somebody's biological sex as well as their social gender. So there's what's known as, you know, two-factor identification. So you can have sex and gender, or you can have sex assigned at birth and, you know, current gender identity. Because for some issues, of course, you know, your, diff- your parameters are somewhat different according to, according to the what people's the biological sex was. And also just a question on that, a point on that, we tend to use the phrase sex assigned at birth and some people don't like that because they say, well, it's not assigned, it's recognised. And the reason we say assigned is because for some proportion of people, intersex people, there is a whole process that has to go through to determine what's the most appropriate sex to group them under. But even apart from that, There is a social process which has great importance, which is when a child is born, somebody signs a birth certificate that allocates them a category of either male or female on their birth certificate, and that that then has a whole lot of social consequences later on. That's not true in all countries. In Germany, there's no male or female on your birth certificate. There is a requirement that you have a a name that is clearly either masculine or feminine. And so we... I think it is important to recognise that that process of creating a birth certificate is is a social one, but it's one that refers to a biological reality most of the time. That's interesting. And in regards to Germany, is that something that is new that they saw was appropriate to be more inclusive or it's just something that they've never done? They just No, they've just never required an M or or an F on your your birth certificate, but you do, well, actually it may have been on their passports, I'm thinking, but you do have to, you do have to have a name, a first name that is clearly either male or female. So you can't be Chris, you have to be Christine or Christopher or whatever the uh, the uh, German equivalents are. Interesting, I see. Now, coming back to a clinical environment and ensuring that there is inclusive practice, what are some other things that a clinic can do to ensure that they're being considerate and inclusive? Well, yeah, those ones we've just talked about, of, of in terms of names and pronouns, putting them on the form, but also on client records. Now, many places will need to have the Medicare name will be required for billing purposes, and that's okay. But if you can put the preferred name at the top of the file or the top of the folder, then that's more likely the name that people will use. So that's quite important. The other thing is, so particularly at the front desk, not misgendering people is, is important. And when there's a discrepancy between their, between their preferred name and their Medicare name, then that is quite likely to happen. Also, sometimes it's, you know, once you have attributed gender to somebody, it's quite hard to shift that. 
So if you're reading somebody as male and they're presenting with a female name and can it be quite difficult to then use female pronouns because in your head you've, you've attributed a male gender to them and people will make mistakes. This is inevitable. Everybody makes mistakes. I've, I've made one out at a, somebody's birthday party just the other day with a, with a trans woman. So one of the things that people do is to practice. So if you've, if you've got a client coming in who you know you're having a bit of difficulty with it, immediately before the consultation, you sort of rehearse, okay, this is Christine, they prefer to be called Chris, and she is a trans woman, and sort of run it through a few times so that you are you know, using their name and using the pronouns that are preferred immediately before the consultation, and that can be quite helpful. Good idea. It's also creating an organisational climate where there are policies and where people speak respectfully about trans clients, don't make, you know, silly jokes about them and, and those sort of things behind the scenes and use their the preferred pronouns and names when talking to other staff members when the person isn't present because that helps build up that you, you will use them in the consultations. Yeah, really important. And Ricky, are there corporate training or some resources that you know of that perhaps you could share with us if you know of any off the top of your head that business owners and such can actually access or even have someone come into their clinic to do some of this training? Because yes, with practice, of course, makes perfect. But for an area that may be new to this, or maybe they have younger team members with less maturity or less experience, etc., then it would be great to hear if there are some kind of standardized training practices, resources that people can access. Yeah, look, there certainly are. There's in Victoria, there's the Transgender Victoria is a community organisation and they, they do run training courses. They were contracted, I'm not sure they still are for quite a while to run more broader LGBTI training for in aged care. And they rolled that out over, I think, a two-year period to dozens of uh, aged care centres facilities in, in Melbourne. So they've got a very well-established training capacity uh, for healthcare organisations. There's also another organisation associated with COPOF uh, called the Bell Gender Collective, and they also run training sessions. We're, at the Gender Clinic, we do run some training for health professionals, mostly in-house at Monash Uni, uh, Monash Health, but sometimes for other, other organisations as well. Fantastic. We'll make sure that we put some links in the show notes as well for all of those for people to access if they're interested. And the other uh, the other things that do happen are that the Australian Association, Australian Professional Association for Transgender Health runs workshops and training seminars on a, on a relatively frequent basis. Okay, fantastic. So let's talk about some of the assessment and changes and some of the treatments as well. So first of all, when we're talking about gender dysphoria, how is this assessed and, and who does the assessment? Okay, so gender dysphoria has sort of two meanings. One is just means the distress or discomfort that a person feels between their sex assigned at birth and their, their gender identity. It's also a diagnosis in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistics Manual version five, which is the current one. There's another diagnosis called gender incongruence, which is in the World Health Organization's International Classification of Diseases. And that, so it's, it's about incongruence. There's no requirement there for there necessarily to be distress, but there's incongruence between sex assigned at birth and, and gender identity. 
Now, how these are assessed varies. There's a, there's a couple of different models. The so traditional model is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health Assessment Process, and that requires assessment by a health professional, uh, mental health professional. That can be a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist, sometimes a counselling, a mental health social worker. And that's a quite a comprehensive assessment that takes at least four hour long sessions. There now are increasingly examples of what are called informed consent models, and these are carried out by general practitioners and therefore hormone prescriptions. So estrogen for trans women or testosterone for trans men or for either of those for non-binary people, depending upon the circumstances. So there are a limited number of general practitioners who will undertake these assessments. There's clinics in Melbourne called Equinox and there's a couple operating out of Ballarat and Preston Community Health called the Trans and Gender Diversity Community Health Initiative. And there's a few other GPs at other, other centres who do that in Melbourne and, and in other states. So that tends to be a shorter assessment. The GP will do some assessment that if there's large mental health issues, they may refer them on to a mental health professional. Otherwise, they will they'll undertake the assessment. For surgery, however, it's still very much the requirement that you do need uh, at least one assessment by a mental health professional. So this would always be the first step if someone wasn't feeling aligned with their sex assigned at birth? Um, Often, no. Often the first steps will be people will seek peer support from, there are a number of trans peer support groups. There's one called Alphabet Soup. There's a Transgender Victoria, there's some funding from the state government to help develop further peer support and that they've got a number of initiatives happening there. So quite often people will uh, connect with other people in the trans community and that's the first place where they seek um, support. The clinics I mentioned before, Equinox and the Trans and Gender Diversity Community Health Ones, they have peer navigators. So the gateway into those services is to talk to a peer navigator. Many people will go and see a counselling psychologist. So they can't formally make the diagnosis, but often that's what people do. They'll go and see somebody who's knowledgeable in the area and talk through their issues and try and work out exactly where they want to go. Because especially these days when it's no longer there's this, either you've got to have the whole package of hormones and surgery and try to pass on your assumed gender identity and leave everything else behind, there's now a whole range of options of how people may want to express uh, their gender in, in the world. And so it can be quite difficult to work out what's best for each individual. So a lot of people will seek counselling and peer support before going for the formal process of assessment. And those sort of reports from psychologists like that, if somebody brings one of those to the GP and the informed consent model or to a mental health professional at, say, the Minor Shelf Gender Clinic, if there's a comprehensive report from an experienced uh, counselling psychologist, that will very much speed up the assessment. Okay, great. Thank you for explaining that process. What are some of the treatment options and options? Because not all of them are treatments, as you say. There's a wide variety, not necessarily covering all of them, but what are the main things that someone can do to help them align with their body and with their gender identity? Well, I'm talking mainly about adult uh, people because that's who the Monash Gender Clinic works with and I don't have uh, a special expertise in the child and adolescent area. I will just briefly say there's an excellent service at the Royal Children's Hospital for child and adolescents. They only take people up to the age of 17 because they've got a year-long wait list. And in that case, for child and adolescents, the, I mean, there's social transition is one thing. So people may transition in primary school and present in their preferred gender. When puberty approaches, uh, often there are what are known as puberty blockers. So these are drugs that uh, 
mean that the the estrogens that are being released in the body or the testosterone that's being released in the body puberty doesn't have any effect because the receptors for them are blocked up and that gives us sort of breathing space to work through the issues and then so that's, that's in, in child and adolescent in adulthood there is of course hormone treatments and these can take a variety of forms of how much hormones people want to take what sort of effects they're looking for with estrogens the effects are mostly reversible if people go on estrogen for a couple of years they'll obviously have a growth in breast tissue and some of that will stay even if they stop taking estrogens um, but otherwise most effects are reversible some of the other effects of taking estrogens are reduction in body hair facial hair etc and a softening of the hair that is there testosterone is a little more there's a, a point beyond which it is not reversible and the obvious one there is the voice drops so if they take enough testosterone you've got the same female, then your voice box will expand. And then after that, it doesn't matter. If you stop taking testosterone, it's, it's, you will have a deeper voice. And also if testosterone for a certain period of time and enough dose, then you will develop more body hair and more facial hair. And when you stop it, that growth will decrease, but it won't completely go away. So there's some of the impacts of hormones. And for some people, it's not all that clear, not sure about whether they want to go on hormones, exactly what effects they want. And so there can be a slow application and see whether they like the impact and then work out exactly what their goals are. And it used to be there was this one size fits all, you had to go on hormones, you had to socially transition for a year because before you could even get hormones. And then you had to be on hormones for two years before you could get any surgery. And that was this was all quite rigid. Now it's a lot more flexible. Some people, for example, but some females who identify as perhaps non-binary but transmasculine may want chest surgery to remove their breasts but not want any hormones or want only low-dose hormones because they don't particularly want to have um, the, the voice box dropping or facial hair. So, yeah, there's some, there's some of the, the impacts. The other sorts of treatments that people have are more social. Uh, I mean. You know, there's, it depends on what stage and what people's life history is, but there are quite different ways that people stand and walk that are stereotypical for gender, particular genders. You know, we all know about man spreading on the bus. And, and so there are some people attempt to change those sort of behaviours. A lot of people have speech therapy, excellent clinic at La Trobe University in Melbourne, and there are other clinics around the country. So that's both perhaps altering your pitch because we all have a range of pitch and it is possible to you know you, you may have a quite masculine voice with a deep a deep pitch but you can go up to the top of your range and then you're not experienced as, as uh, so masculine some people seek vocal cord surgery to alter the pitch of their voice uh, there's a lot of debate about how effective that is there so that's probably and then of course there's genital surgery is the is the other one so for trans women this involves there's various techniques, but the, one of them's basically the creation of a labia, a clitoris, and a vagina. Uh, some people will only have a labiaplasty. They won't have a vagina created. And then there is the possibility of phalloplasty, so that's creation of a penis. That's a lot more expensive and has a lot more complications uh, than vaginoplasty. And there's only one surgeon in Australia that's doing phalloplasty, whereas there are several that do vaginoplasty. Okay, and as you've described, there's a whole range from least invasive to a lot more invasive and a lot more expensive as well. It's great to hear that it's not as rigid and it's very much a personal journey for someone. 
where how will they know when it's time for gender affirming medication or surgery? Well, <laughs> I don't think I have a really good answer for that. Actually. Yeah, in the sense of like the guidance of social peers and things is, I guess, from your experience in the field, is is there kind of this tipping point where someone's like, okay, I, I'm ready? And is there any kind of... Like- a lot of people, the difficulty is that their relationships would be threatened by them transitioning. So people may prioritise their intimate partner relationships ahead of, ahead of transitioning because, you know, very many people have... Uh, married somebody who you know as a as a man or a woman and they're not necessarily comfortable with being in a relationship with somebody who's now not doesn't have that sort of gender position so that's a big issue for people so that's different to whether they know that they want gender affirming hormones or surgery but whether that is more important to them than other factors in their life their relationships with their partner with their children with their parents those sort of issues now there's also historically of course there's been enormous discrimination against people who transition. Uh, it used to almost always mean people lost their jobs and then were, were often not able to be employed in the field. So back in the 50s and 60s, there were prominent cases of well-paid, respected barristers who basically after they transitioned couldn't work in that field anymore because nobody would, uh, nobody would have. Now, that, that sort of level of discrimination is so bad today. You're asking before about, you know, companies seeking guidance. Actually, it's interesting because some of the big corporate multinational type companies do in fact have quite good policies and processes around this now. So that's less of an inhibition for people. They might have wanted to transition, but just thought it was going to be too destructive to their life. I think it's really a, um, it is very much an individual decision. And it's one that for some people, it's just really obvious. They absolutely know, they've, they've always known, and it's just, I need to do this as soon as possible. For other people, it's something they have to work through in careful consultation with a, an inclusive and affirmative practitioner. Yeah, thank you. I know that doesn't give you a clear answer, but... <laughs> no, it does. I mean, it, it is a question that is a little bit difficult, but it's, you know, at what point it's going to be different for everyone, but there is going to be at some point, or maybe for not, maybe some people are never going to take or do gender affirming surgeries. Um, They may be just happy for the social aspects, but yeah, it's just interesting to hear from your experience. Yeah. Look, actually another thing, and this of course is relevant for sort of dermal clinician type profession. I mean, quite often it's, that's the first thing people do. Uh, is is have facial hair removal uh, for the trans women and then body hair removal and sometimes people do that before they go and talk to anybody else so and that does mean that sometimes there'll be some important disclosures happening to those people because they may actually it might be the first people they're really talking to about these options are so accessible now too which is fantastic yeah are you able to share some of the potential complications of some of these treatments and surgeries some of the most common ones that you described earlier well, I mean, you know, these are surgeries, so you can have all the usual central complications of surgeries in terms of wound infections, reactions to anaesthesia, you know, if you've got underlying heart issues, or, or, or all the usual sorts of things that you would have with any surgery, there's the same sort of problem. I guess because these are, I mean, when we're talking about the chests and the genitals, these are very important body parts, both for self-image but also for attractiveness, etc. So it can, of course, be scarring, and that can be quite problematic for people when they're scarring. And there can also be, particularly with phalloplasty, there tend to be more of the sort of infections and need for uh, revisions and those sort of things, um, just because it's much more complicated surgery. 
some of the other sorts of things that happen, say with vaginoplasty, sometimes people need to uh, dilate, regulate, particularly straight afterwards. And if they don't, if the dilation isn't done consistently or properly or just for some other reason, then the vagina can become closed and, and, and won't open. Uh, so that's a complication, of course. I mean, there's, again, as with any surgery, there can be errors in the surgery. So uh, adjacent parts of the anatomy in the bowel area can get nicked and then, then you've got, you know, problems there. But that's not really any different to any other sorts of surgery. Yeah, so that's the main ones with surgery with hormones. There can, of course, be interactions with other medications. So it's pretty important to have a good idea of what, what other medications you're taking and how, how it might affect them. I mean, a classic one would be, they're not used so much anymore, but the, the classic sort of like tricyclic antidepressants uh, were quite strongly affected by estrogen. Because they only trialled them on men. So they didn't, they, when, when they, then when the women were put on the antidepressants and that, they, they didn't work uh, for, you know, certain periods of their, their menstrual cycle, they, uh, they had, to, had to catch up to that 20 years later. But yeah, there can be interactions with the psychoactive drugs. There can be for people who are, have psychotic symptoms, there can be some exacerbation of those symptoms. That's more with testosterone than with estrogen. So in the past, people with a history of psychosis would have been ruled out from receiving hormones. That's not the case now. But the requirement in WPATH is that uh, mental health conditions need to be reasonably well controlled which leaves quite a lot of room to manoeuvre for the individual clinician. But if somebody does have a history of psychosis and it's under control, then you'd probably have a very slow introduction of hormones just to make sure that there wasn't an interaction. That's probably most of the things. The, the other thing, of course, that can happen is that um, a small percentage of people regret their, their surgeries or regret their, their bodily changes that, are, that happen through hormones. The best studies we have on that are it's a sort of one or two percent estimate, something like that. People regret it, and sometimes it's not that they regret the surgery; it's that they re they didn't realise that after transitioning they were still going to be misgendered and were going to be very stigmatised and discriminated against, and so they didn't quite get you know realise what the social consequences. Were. They were sort of happy with the body, but they weren't happy with the social consequences of having transitioned and therefore regretted having had surgery. So that's something that obviously why having a serious conversation with an experienced mental health professional about what, what your goals and aims are and, and realistic expectations is quite valuable. On the other hand, you don't want people standing in your way and doing so much gatekeeping that so people get you know, very frustrated and, and, and depressed about the fact that they're not, not being able to go forward to their goals. Yeah, quite a myriad of potential complications or, or challenges and difficulties but just really interesting even to hear how medications have changed. And, and I assume it's not a very long time period, maybe in the last couple of decades that that has changed and there's less complications due to that, which is just really amazing how we have leaps and bounds in the medical arena and how things have progressed so quickly. When it comes to skin, Ricky, what are some of the changes, concerns, conditions that may be affected by hormone therapy or gender affirming therapies? Obviously one you mentioned earlier was scarring from surgery. Yep. You mentioned also that hormones can affect hair growth, etc. What are some of the things that people might not expect to happen to their skin? And what are some of those treatments that they can do that might be a more cosmetic aesthetic and maybe performed by aesthetic nurses, dermal clinicians, et cetera? Well, I mean, obviously the estrogen treatments will generally reduce hair growth, both body and facial hair and soften them, uh, but they won't eliminate them. 
Testosterone will increase body hair, increase facial hair. It may also, depending on the underlying genetics of the person involved, it may also induce male pattern baldness, which is a quite complicated phenomenon. There is an underlying genetic condition on an X-linked chromosome, but you have to have certain levels of testosterone to activate it. So if people have that uh, genetic predisposition towards what's called uh, male pattern baldness and their birth is done female, then when they uh, go on testosterone for long enough, they will develop that. And that's something that's not necessarily what people want. Yeah, that could be quite don't a shock. Like going bald. So that's that's an issue where, you know, you might want to calibrate your, your hormone dosage carefully. But and also so for some some trans men, they don't particularly want as much body hair as they get. So they may actually seek laser electrolysis. In terms of now, estrogens will usually soften the skin. That's one of the impacts. So that's usually a desired effect for trans women. For some trans men, they might get some. Uh, I don't know this area particularly well, but uh, they may get some skin changes that, that, that they feel a bit less comfortable with. They might be more likely to have drier skin, those sort of things. Yeah, interesting. As we know that um, things such as sebaceous activity and things are, are so affected by hormone therapy, I can imagine that sometimes people could be experiencing outbreaks of acne and things that they haven't had in the past simply because of these hormone changes in their body as well. Yeah, I mean, it's on a biological level uh, as well as on a social level. It's a bit it's a bit like going through puberty again, you know, if you're doing it in later life. In fact, um, I was talking, we were interviewing someone the other day. I've got a student who's interested in the whole idea of what, what does menopause mean for trans people and mm, interesting. trans man who basically transitioned and had their menopause at the same time. And they said, well, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm going through menopause at the same time as I'm uh, a pimply teenager. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so you do actually get some of that sort of, some of those effects as well, yeah. So for that age group, would they be experiencing things such as hot flushes and those changes as well? Well, this is an extremely unresearched area, okay? It's hardly any research at all, but um, I mean, this person reported that in fact it was much quicker. It's only about three months. Interesting. Wow. But I have no other evidence than a single person's word on that. Hopefully we'll, we'll gather some more evidence over time. Yeah, over time, so many different stages of life. Yeah, very interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 to 20 years because I'm sure there will be much more independent and university studies, et cetera, in this whole arena. So tell us about the Monash Health Gender Clinic. What's the process? Does someone need a referral? Yes. Okay, so, well, first of all, the Monash Health Gender Clinic, it's by far the longest established clinic in Australia. It's been going since 1976, I believe. And it's obviously that's before Monash existed. Okay, so it is a mental health clinic. It has a couple of psychiatrists and clinical psychologists, and they perform comprehensive assessments using the WPATH model. So they take a, a full gender history and they're, they're, you know, from childhood, etc. They do a full mental health history. They also look at people's social circumstances and they try to talk through the issues with people on an individual basis about what the individual goals are and situations are. And trying to get away as much as possible from the sort of the gatekeeping of that the mental health professional is the person who you know decides whether or not you can access the treatments that people want. You can't get rid of that altogether, though. That that is the reality: is that the surgeons 
won't do surgery without that letter from the mental health professional. And so if the mental health professionals have some serious concerns, they will probably recommend to the person that they do something to get their mental health issues under control before proceeding, uh, get a secure living situation. You can't really go and have a vaginoplasty if you haven't got somewhere safe to, safe to sleep afterwards to recuperate and to do all your dilating and all that sort of thing. Before people to get it to access the Monashal Gender Clinic, you do need a referral from a health professional. So no, from a, a medical professional. So from a GP usually or from a specialist sometimes, sometimes there'll be referrals from endocrinologists or from psychiatrists uh, or clinical psychologists. Say from a psychiatrist, they might, may not feel that they're comfortable, they don't know enough about the area in order to, to make the assessment, so they might refer in. But usually it's from the, the general practitioner and that's, that's what's preferred because if somebody comes into the clinic and then it's, it's agreed that, you know, they'll, they'll the, they'll get hormone treatment. We then refer them on to the endocrinology clinic within Monash Health, and they would authorize, you know, prescribe the hormones. But after that, the maintenance of those hormones and the re-prescribing of those hormones would probably be done by a GP. So it's what it's a different thing for a GP to do the initial prescription under an informed consent model than it is for a GP to continue and maintain the, the hormone prescriptions after somebody's already been through the WPATH model at the gender clinic and then been to an endocrinologist and then the GP's just managing it on an ongoing basis. Does that answer your question or was that? Yeah, no, it does. And and am I right to say that it's adults over 18 at the Monash uh, Gender Clinic? We, we ch- when, when the Royal Children's got so busy that they were only accepting up, up to the age of, basically you had to be under 17 there because of the 12-month waiting list, you wouldn't get in then. So we accept people from the age of 17. However, the waiting list is about 16 months at the moment. So, wow. Yeah, which is where there's just a very large amount of demand and we have had a few clinicians leave and we haven't managed to replace them yet. So, yeah, it's quite difficult. So... We certainly recommend these days that if people have don't have any you know, are looking for hormones and don't have serious mental health or, or other issues or intellectual disability, uh, maybe autism spectrum stuff, you know, serious autism spectrum stuff, things like that. They don't have those big complex sort of health needs. We would recommend that people go through the informed consent model and, and, and find a, a GP who's experienced in the area. Um, and because it's, they'll have a much shorter waiting waiting time. Okay, that's great advice. And for those that may be located nationally in Australia or even overseas, the Monash Health Gender Clinic is in, in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. And it only sees people in the state of Victoria and to some degree in Tasmania. Okay, I see. And from your experience, are there g- gender clinics as, as bi- maybe not as big, but... <sighs> As uh, it's very different from state to state. There, in the child and adolescence uh, system, it's there's in Perth, there's um, funded by the Telethon Kids Institute. There's a there's a clinic there. There's also one at the in Brisbane at the Brisbane Children's Clinic. There's one just recently been announced in Adelaide. In the adult space, there's very little public provision in any other states. There's bits and pieces, and in New South Wales, it's almost entirely well. There's a lot of private provision. What happens in in New South Wales though is that the sexual health clinics take up a lot of this area and that's true in some other places as well that um, sexual health physicians will often see clients and will prescribe hormones 
So that's quite common in, in some other states. And in Brisbane, there's some really experienced GPs and they've, they've operated uh, specific, special clinics for this population from, from time to time. Mm, it's okay. a patchwork quilt and uh, internationally it varies a lot in, and the, the, the models under which the clinics are prepared to authorise vary quite a lot. For example, within Europe, it varies a lot between the different states about uh, how much gatekeeping there is and how much it's individualised and all that sort of thing. In the US, there's a lot that the shift towards more primary care provision is, is probably gone the furthest uh, than anywhere. Okay, that's interesting. And usually we are a few years behind the US, so we might see it as a trend, which could be beneficial and, and change some things in the future here as well. Hmm. So, Ricky, you also work in the research space. So is yep. there anything interesting, um, exciting that you're, you're seeing on the horizon that's being researched presently? Well, I think there's a lot happening in the child and adolescent space. As I said, I talked about this in Perth, the Telecom Kids Institute has done some really good stuff. And the Royal Children's Hospital has, through a grant from the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation and association with the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, is doing some really good research. There's a lot going on about the long-term impacts of uh, various hormone regimes, et cetera, on bone density, that sort of stuff. There's a lot going, there's a lot of research going on on the impacts of training for health, health professionals in terms of improving, you know, the quality of care for this population. In the, I mean, there is there is quite a significant amount of research going on, particularly in the in the US and also in Europe. And there's quite a lot going on in Australia. It hasn't been funded very well in terms of getting grants from uh, NHMSC or the you know the, the government funded grant organisations. There has been yep. quite limited success in, in getting access to those funds. It's certainly hoped that in future there will be. In the states, there's been a bit more success with getting. They're the NIH, NIH, National Institute of Health, funding over the years, not so much under Trump, unsurprisingly. But yeah, there's a lot of a lot of different things to look at in terms of people's quality of life. And there's also research going on to different surgical techniques and, and all those sort of things. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your experience and knowledge with us today. Where can people find more about you and the work that you do? If you, well, one thing is if you look on the Monashville Gender Clinic website, there's now a research page there. So there's uh, some contact details and a, little, a few publications and things there and a description of the, um, the sort of research projects we've got underway at the Monashville Gender Clinic. In terms of my primary healthcare stuff, there's, there's things, uh, again, if you go to the Monash Uni site, there's, um, you can find some details there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ricky. It's um, been an absolute pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks for making the offer. What a wonderful conversation and important conversation to have. Ricky shared so much knowledge from his many, many, many years of experience in this field. And I think this podcast episode is really important for anyone that might be working in a clinic and you might have clients or patients that are going through gender affirming treatments, or you may be a friend or family member. Either way, I think it's just important for us across the board to be educating ourselves to ensure that we are living in more of an inclusive world. And I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed recording this episode. Until next time, be skin powered.